I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Sakshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. I am Aditya Parik. Before we begin, I'd just like to mention that the Takshashila Institution is conducting an exercise we call India's Global Outlook Survey. The aim of the survey is to gauge what you think India should prioritize in its foreign policy. Click the link in the description to take the survey and let us know your views. Now, coming to today's episode, Eastern Europe and especially the Balkans are a rarely discussed topic in India. However, the region has significant bearing on the global security picture and, by extension, the prosperity of the world. From the fateful events of 1914 that led to the First World War to the difficult times during the NATO intervention and the war in 1999, there are painful memories. But how have things progressed in the region since then? What is the modern geopolitical and security situation like? To discuss, I have with me today Nikola Mikovic. Welcome, Nikola. Thank you, Adya. Happy to be here. Nikola is a journalist and geopolitical analyst from Serbia, covering strategic issues across regions of the globe. And his writings have appeared in outlets such as China's CGTN and Australia's Lawi Institute, among many others. To start with, let's talk something in the headlines. So, Nikola, can you tell us a bit about the situation between Serbia and Kosovo recently? Some headlines were trending that war might be looming. given that the region has seen some turbulence what developments are likely in the near future well despite some collective projections and media hysteria no war broke out as we can see the whole charade on what serbia calls the administrative border with kosovo was staged and it is not the first time that we had that type of tensions in the region as a matter of fact tensions became so frequent that not many people take them too seriously anymore it it is so obvious that tensions were artificially created i mean the the very fact that nato troops in kosovo tolerated serbian helicopters and jets flying along the administrative border it's a clear indication that there was a wider deal between the serbian government um, the authorities in pristina and foreign powers operating in the region so at the end they resolved the license plate issue uh, which is what originally triggered protests and road blockades in north kosovo where the serbs make up the majority of the population but the problem is that it is a temporary solution so now drivers from serbia they need to cover the state symbols in their vehicles license plates when entering kosovo uh, which is another humiliation for serbia Uh, on the other hand drivers from kosovo need to do the same thing when entering serbia because uh, belgrade doesn't recognize kosovo's uh, unilaterally declared independence from serbia in 2008 in any case it is pristina rather than belgrade that has the upper hand in this license plate dispute uh, as well as in in all other disputes and that's because it is 
firmly backed by NATO, the European Union, and the United States. So as long as NATO troops are in Kosovo, I don't expect any conflicts or wars. But if, if there was a war, which, again, is extremely unlikely to happen, um, the Serbian army could easily capture Kosovo's north, and that would probably have a land swap, which was apparently discussed in the past. But that option is not very probable. I think the United States doesn't seem to approve such an option. And the U.S. has a large military base in Kosovo, as we know. But even if Washington eventually decides to withdraw its troops from the region, the EU will still be here. And, and I don't think the EU is interested in destabilization of the Balkans, where it plays a dominant role. So what developments are likely in the near future? I, I, I think Belgrade and Pristina will continue their dialogue in Brussels. And it is entirely possible that Serbia will have to keep making concessions, uh, although I don't think it will explicitly recognize Kosovo. But Belgrade has already made so much steps that led to de facto recognition of this entity. So I will not be surprised if, if it eventually allows vehicles with Kosovo license plates to enter Serbia without any stickers that would cover Kosovo state symbols. Other than that, I think new artificial tensions and incidents are quite possible in the midterm, uh, but not any wars or conflicts. Interesting. So uh, since you mentioned the military bases in Kosovo, so can we talk about the militaries in the region? What shape are they uh, in the Balkan region? What shape are the militaries in the Balkan region like? The balance of power favors whom today in the ex-Yugoslavia space? So four out of six of the former Yugoslav republics are NATO members now. So Croatia, Slovenia, North Macedonia, uh, Montenegro. Serbia and uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina are the only two countries in the region that are still out of NATO, although NATO troops are de facto in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. They were deployed there in the mid-1990s for the Bosnian War under the name of Stabilization Force in Bosnia and Herzegovina, or S4. Uh, and then in 2004, uh, it was replaced by EU4, uh, the European Union force in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, but most EU members are also NATO members. So technically, uh, there is still NATO presence in Bosnia, uh, even though the country is neither the EU or NATO member. So that tells you a lot on who actually pulls the strings in the Balkan country. And it, it, it is quite possible that Bosnia will join NATO in the foreseeable future. I, I cannot say the same thing about Serbia situation here is a bit, a bit more complicated. According to Serbian constitution, Kosovo is part of Serbia, which means that, legally speaking, NATO troops are stationed on Serbian territory. In 2007, Serbia declared military neutrality, so it is not seeking NATO membership. Although the Serbian army conducts far more military drills with NATO than with Russia or China or any other nation. And um, Serbia has a partnership program with the Ohio National Guard. So it, it doesn't have to, to be a formal NATO member. It is already involved in many NATO structures. And I think NATO is not even interested in, in, in a potential Serbia's membership. 
Serbia is completely surrounded by NATO. So as I said, it doesn't have to, to be a formal member of the alliance. Now, Western media and analysts and some think tanks and so on, they all tend to exaggerate Serbia's military ties with Russia. Yes, the country recently purchased some old Russian jets and air defense systems, but it's certainly not something that worries the United States or, or anyone in the region. Um, I think Serbian army, combined with armed forces of, of other former Yugoslav republics, they're all much weaker than, let's say, the former Yugoslav People's Army. Uh, despite modern technology that some of those militaries use nowadays, no matter what some people might think of the socialist Yugoslavia, um, it was it, it was a respectable country and it, it played a very important role, not only in the Balkans, but in the global arena as well. It was one of the founders of the non-aligned movement together with Egypt and uh, with your country, India. And by the way, the non-aligned movement summit is just taking place in, in Belgrade as we speak. Anyway, Yugoslav People's Army was one of the strongest armies in, in Europe. And nowadays, given the state of the Balkan nations' economies, I don't think they would be capable of fighting a long war. In 1999, the year that you mentioned, when NATO attacked Serbia, the country was cut off from the rest of the world and was heavily isolated. But still, its armed forces were much stronger than they are now. Um, but any conflicts in the Balkans now are extremely improbable, uh, at, at this point at least. As I said, the region is firmly in the U.S. and uh, the EU sphere of influence. So I just don't see why would they destabilize their own client states. I mean, it just wouldn't make any sense. That's intriguing. So on that note, folks, we'll take a short break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, folks. We are discussing the geopolitics and security situation in the Balkans. Moving on, so you mentioned uh, in your previous answer uh, about how Russia is, is somewhat similar to Serbia and how a bit of security interests might be overlapping there. But, you know, in general, I don't personally think that Russia has very much invested in Serbia or vice versa. I'm sure you come across ignorant takes all the time on social media or other parts of the internet suggesting that Russia is some sort of a big brother state to Serbia and that uh, their interests are inseparable. Is it in any way correct to say that some Balkan countries have some patron powers? Well, I think all Balkan countries have um, the same patron powers or maybe we could say the same neocolonial masters, if you will. And... Um, those powers are the United States and the European Union, possibly also the United Kingdom to a certain extent. You're probably familiar with the 1944 percentage agreement between British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. According to that deal, the West had 50% of the influence in Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union had 50% as well. Now, it, it's quite possible that the West and Russia and maybe some other actors, they made another deal after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So now the West has, I would say, at least 80% of the influence in the Balkan countries that are out of the European Union. And all other powers, Russia, 
China, Turkey, they share the remaining 20%. Um, in Serbia, you're right, R- Russia's influence is not nearly as strong as Western media tend to portray it. So the, the Kremlin effectively controls part of Russia, uh, I'm sorry, of Serbia's energy sector, although it's a very significant part. And there are also some allegedly pro-Russian analysts, and there's also Sputnik news agency operating in Serbia. There's also Sberbank and so on. But in terms of education, culture, monetary system, and so on, Russia's influence is close to zero. All those sectors are controlled by those that Russian officials call uh, dear Western partners. It is true that many Serbs have a strong, a positive sentiment for Russia, but it doesn't mean that Serbia and Russia are allies. Uh, as I said, Serbia declared military neutrality in 2007, uh, so it doesn't have any allies. Politically, Serbia is the EU candidate state, so it's basically surrounded by the EU, and uh, Brussels doesn't seem to, to intend to grant full-fledged membership to Serbia or to any other Balkan countries anytime soon, if at all. Uh, but still, uh, it, it's natural that other global and regional actors uh, seek for a certain portion of influence in the Balkans, but I think they can get only what the West allows them to have. I'll give an example. So a couple of years ago, the U.S., steel companies operating in Serbia, they sold their assets to Chinese corporations, which is just another indication that the West doesn't see Chinese business in the Balkans as a big threat to its interests in the region. Even in Croatia, which is the EU member, uh, China is involved in the construction of the bridge that will connect the southernmost portion of Croatia with the north of the country. And uh, the European Union is funding the construction of that bridge. So foreign powers that are active in the Balkans, they act here as partners most of the time, not as rivals. Thanks for that take, Nicola. It's uh, really insightful for me, uh, especially about how uh, Serbia's energy sector is uh, quite a bit connected with Russia's. I'll look into that especially. So moving on, uh, since you've mentioned Turkey, and its influence in the region. So what is your opinion? How is Erdogan's Turkey influencing and shaping the region today? We've all heard of the Bayraktar drones making headways into the global military market after the recent war between Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia, where those drones performed quite well and got headlines. So apart from that, what is Turkey's influence like in the region? Yeah, Serbia is also apparently interested in purchasing uh, Bayraktar drones, although I'm not sure the West will allow Belgrade to have such weapons. So 200 years ago, this region was part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, so at that time, it was 100% in the Turkish geopolitical orbit. But nowadays, Turkish influence in countries such as Serbia, Albania, and Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro and so on, it is rather limited. The same as Russian influence, after all. And the way that Russia treats Serbia and the Serbs, it's pretty similar to the way that Turkey treats Muslim population in the Balkans, particularly in in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Just like there is a pro-Russian sentiment in Serbia, 
there is also pro-Turkish sentiment among Bosnian Muslims or Bosniaks. Uh, both of those sentiments are declarative. In reality, very few Serbs speak Russian, very few Bosniaks speak Turkish. Bosnia's major trade partner is Serbia, not Turkey, and uh, Serbia's major export destination is um, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And it's interesting that Turkey has very few investments in Bosnia, despite Erdogan's pro-Bosnian rhetoric. Turkey funded constructions of mosques and maybe some schools in Bosnia, but for some reason Ankara decided to open plants in Serbia, not in Bosnia. So Turkey is, is not playing the major role in the Balkans, not even in countries such as Albania or North Macedonia, not, not even in Kosovo. Although there are speculations that the United States could eventually withdraw from the region and then allow Turkey to increase its presence in the Balkans. I think such a scenario is possible, especially with this Open Balkans initiative for regional cooperation, which is basically a substitute for the EU membership, because it is quite clear that non-Balkan states will join the EU at least until 2030, if at all. So North Macedonia and Serbia... They are founders of the Open Balkans Initiative, and they are connecting Turkey with Western Europe, which is why Ankara tends to increase its economic presence in those countries. Also in Albania, to a certain extent, um, and Albania is another member of, and another founder of the Open Balkans Initiative. Uh, Serbia recently started building train corridor linking Albania and Europe through Serbia and Kosovo. So. Uh, who actually needs that corridor? That, that's the key question. Belgrade was pressured by the West to, to engage in the construction of that project. So I think it is the West that will benefit from the Open Balkans Initiative. And of course, there is also room for Turkey to get involved and act as one of dominant foreign powers. But that, that's possible only if, if the West allows that. We often hear about uh, the alleged Erdogan's new Ottoman ambitions. But I think economic interest, that is something that drives Turkish foreign policy. We see that Turkey aims to establish control over gas reserves in the Mediterranean, namely in Libya. And given that the Balkans is also an energy-rich region, since it has significant coal reserves, it is not surprising that Turkey attempts to improve its positions in the region. But again, uh, in order to do that, uh, Turkey will have to make deals with those powers that, that, that have the real power in the Balkans. And as I said, that's the United States and the European Union. That's very interesting that you'd say that to the United States and the European Union are actually the players that have the real power and Turkey or Russia would have to actually parley with them to actually exert influence uh, in the region properly. So, thank you for this insightful discussion, Nikola. Thank you for having me. On that note, folks, we'll call it a wrap. If you like today's discussion, do check out all past and future episodes of All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. 
The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.